Welcome, listeners, to the QBS Express, the ACC Kansas podcast. I'm your host, Executive Director Scott Heidner, and uh, co-hosting with me today is uh, my friend Jeff Keller from Burns & McDonald. He's a senior project manager over there, also a past member of the ACC Kansas Board of Directors, and That's right. uh, near and dear to my heart, a graduate of the 2008 Emerging Leaders Program. Yep. Jeff and I have as our guest today uh, Tom Stiles from the Kansas Department of Health and Environment. Tom's the director for the Bureau of Water. He'll be a name a lot of our members will know. But, Tom, thanks for making time to come over and join us. Pleasure's all mine, Scott. Thank Very you. Very good. Well, we're looking forward to learning more about KDHE and, and your role and all the partnership between uh, KDHE and the ACEC members. Start off, uh, we always like to learn a little bit on the personal side from our guests. Give us some background of you, where you grew up, and how you, uh, academically, what your path was, and and professionally, how you uh, wound up at KDHE and in the infrastructure environment. Sure. Um, So I grew up in Iowa, Quad City area, so I was on the Mississippi River, so water was always kind of uh, part of our uh, background and so forth. Uh, Stayed there through high school, then after graduation, went out to Colorado State for bachelor's, I went into um, watershed science. Now, um, all the aptitude tests said, hey, you're going to be an engineer. And I go, God, I, I, I don't have the discipline to be that. Let me find something else. And so I wound up being essentially, a, I, this was kind of the, the dawn of the era of where you start doing multidisciplinary uh, interaction among um, among the uh, the scientific community. So I, I wound up being a um, in a watershed uh, management program there at Colorado State and was a hydrologist. So I took a lot of the engineering classes and all that, but I didn't do what was necessary to ultimately get my uh, EIT or, or progress down the path toward, toward a PE. But I was happy um, until I hit the job market and people go, what is this? And we don't know. And well, I found I, I found work uh, after uh, Colorado State. I worked for a, a private firm up in Montana and then down in New Mexico uh, doing data collection off of uh, lands that were slated for um, coal mining and so forth. So they wanted to get the baseline of what uh, quantity and quality of, of the water that's coming off those lands. Then after a, a year and a half of that, I uh, jumped out of there and went up to Minnesota and went to grad school up there again over in the College of Forestry, um, where I did uh, forest hydrology. Now, I couldn't tell you the, the species of any given tree, probably, but I, I could understand wildland hydrology. And again, did a lot of grad work up in the peatlands in northern Minnesota, and again, with an emphasis toward water quality. Um, from there, I mean, it was the middle of the Reagan recession, and I uh, was scrambling, looking for whatever work we could well, I could find. And Landed down here in Kansas, worked for the uh, uh, what was kind of emerging as the Kansas Water Office uh, to do uh, uh, policy and planning, which I had never taken a class in or anything, but it was a job. And I said, well, give it a year, get footing, get some experience, and I'll go jump out and go do what I really want to do. Um, Sixteen years later, then I left them and went over to uh, KDHE to start up building the uh, total maximum daily load program for uh, 
underwater there, which I've always felt like was my calling, was what I was born to do. It was a perfect blend of uh, water quality uh, as, as well as then uh, invoking kind of the, the hydrologic backstory. How I kind of got into infrastructure, and before you get to infrastructure, you get to environment. But it was it was Earth Day, 1970, where a 13-year-old kid who kind of had a penchant for science and all that all of a sudden got caught up in what all this environmental advocacy was was happening there, uh, and really took to it. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something with water quality. And so that kind of set my my career path. At age 13. Yeah, at age 13. All but right. if you knew me at age thirteen, you go, yeah, no surprise. Uh, kind of a kind of a dweeb. <laughs> <laughs> weren't uh, weren't we all? Yeah, yeah, I think we can all relate, right? Yeah, no doubt. Well, let me ask you a, a couple things about that, and then I want to move on to your job today with KDHE. First of all, we've had the opportunity ACEC to work with you for many many years, and you have been here in Kansas so long. I had no idea you had such a diverse. Uh, geographic background, all the different places you've lived. That's interesting. Yeah, it's always uh, kind of uh, stood me up well in terms of a variety of uh, uh, experiences that then kind of brought it to bear. And, and if I brought anything here, it was much more of a kind of a common sense, pragmatic, how are we going to uh, do things, whether it was establishing minimum stream flows uh, in, in, in our streams or developing reservoir operations on the Kansas River for uh, municipal industrial water supply and then over once we got into water quality how how are we going to do this these these tmdls that uh, uh the courts are requiring us to do and so forth so it's it all those experiences have kind of informed that uh, uh strategy on how to uh, create and then implement those programs well one last specific question then again i really want to get into the the remit that you're bureau has at kdhe and that kind of thing uh so you grew up in iowa go to college or go to school anywhere in the world colorado what was the driver was it the school or was it colorado always had some pull or well this was back in the days where you didn't look online to see what the courses were and all that you had to go down to the library and pull the catalog off the shelf and start spending your evenings leafing through uh what they had to offer there and i got the colorado state one and just started leaving through it, and I came across this watershed science uh, major. I go, huh, I think that's what I want to do. And uh, so in senior year, of course, like many people, we went around, my parents and I went around to visit uh, potential universities and uh, flew out to, to Colorado, went up to Colorado State, and it was during spring break, so no one was around. But we were walking around, just kind of taking in the, the scene. And a professor was there and sat down with us, and kind of we were talking about this. And he kept trying to talk me out of, not, don't come here, don't come here. And in the end, he goes, you know, you got to understand. Um, you know, we get a lot of people here with for looking for a wildlife biology uh, degree, and there just aren't that many jobs. I go, wildlife biology? I don't want to do that. I want to do watershed science. Oh, oh, well, you'll have no problem getting a job. <laughs> and right then, my dad says, we're done. This is where you're going. So. <laughs> well, let's move on to KDHE specifically. Uh, well, the Bureau of Water specifically, because KDHE, as a lot of our listeners know, the remit of KDHE is just enormous, you know, from health to water to environment to 
you name it. But talk to us about the Bureau of Water. Um, how does KDHE, your bureau, interact with EPA? Uh, and and what the the coverage areas basically are, what the responsibilities are for your bureau. So at its core, the Bureau of Water deals with uh, implementing and administering the, the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act, uh, two of the environmental acts that came again in the aftermath of that Earth Day in 1970, but in 72 and 74, kind of breaking out into... Uh, uh, implementing a path toward uh, appropriate water quality and protection of public health for, for their drinking water supply. So we implement those. Now, those are federal uh, acts and federal programs that are delegated down to the state um, that after you know, my predecessors did a lot of the, the heavy lifting to basically show that they were uh, ready, willing, and able, and capable of administering the act, and then EPA would delegate the programs um, to us. So we will essentially uh, deal with pretty much all matters uh, regarding water quality for, and and, and uh, treatment of, of water from from tap to toilet. I mean, uh, we will look at uh, all the requirements that are expected of our public water supplies um, pursuant to the Safe Drinking Water Act, and then conversely, how we minimize impacts to the environment because of uh, the, the permitting process and the very the, the establishment of water quality standards and so forth pursuant to the Clean Water Act. So we are essentially the point of the spear when it comes to uh, implementing the national policy on, on uh, clean and, and, and safe drinking water. The relationship with EPA is, uh, on paper, it's, it's co-regulator. Um, and that while we, EPA is basically... The overall, the overseer of, of making sure that the the acts are being in, implemented correctly, they uh, give us due deference to basically customize it somewhat to a degree to what fits the the sociology and the and the geography of, of, of Kansas and so forth. I guess again, that's on paper. Uh, in reality, there are times where we kind of tilt um, a little bit, uh, where the EPA is a little bit more uh, overlord over us to to do that. To a degree, that's not bad because, you know, we will try some innovative things and, and then vet it with them to make sure that um, we're staying consistent with the, the intention and, and letter of, of what the, the two acts do. Um, sometimes it causes some bristling between uh, the respective staffs, but we've always enjoyed a really great relationship with EPA at the regional level. Uh, uh, frankly, they get us and they understand, and um, I... From the stories I hear from my uh, fellow states elsewhere and their respective regions, this seems to be kind of the the exception and rather than a rule where there, things are a little more contentious and, and so forth. But uh, we've never had it to any serious degree uh, go to down go down that path. So we're very pleased with the relationship we've had with EPA over the years, and in, and in conversely, in, in, in turn, I think they've been very pleased with our uh, commitment to. Uh, push and continue to implement the the two acts to a degree that uh, really um, goes toward uh, fulfilling the spirit of why the two acts came came into being. Well, one last comment, and I'll turn over to Mr. Keller to, to dive a little deeper into some smart people topics. Uh, it's always fun for me to see as a lifelong Kansan and a proud Kansan uh, your story that your relationship uh, compared to, 
you know, other states is so much better is, is just not uncommon, whether it's the relationship that the consultants have with our public sector owners or the relationship our public sector owners have with federal agencies. It just seems to go better in Kansas than it does, than it does most other places, which is, I think, rightfully a source of pride. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. And, you know, one thing that I reflect on is probably one of the challenges you all have in your relationship with EPA is those names and faces change with different administrations and directions change and all that. So you've got a little bit of a relationship management and juggling job to do as well as your day job, right? Yeah, but they do too because right. our administrations change over mm-hmm. and our secretaries change over and the philosophy that goes on is that the, the uh, governor's office bounces between the, uh, the two parties and then the legislature uh, to varying degrees gets involved in, in some of our matters. So EPA is... Um, I'll give them credit that they basically uh, kind of uh, retain a, a spectator status to watch what's going on, but will throw the challenge flag on the field when they see things are going tilted uh, that be contrary to, to what, what's been going on uh, relative to that. So um, I think, again, our, I think our relationship has been has been very solid. I think Kansas has, uh, even though it's got the reputation of being you know quite red, quite conservative, uh, I think they've been very um, active, uh, pragmatic stewards of uh, both the environment as well as uh, helping guide our public water supplies to deliver uh, safe water to the, a majority of the citizens here in the state. So kind of to that point and talking about federal and state and all that, let's let's talk, you know, the past few months have been well, a fair amount of good news for environment and infrastructure and for, for water people like me. Water topics, you know, big infrastructure bill gets approved at the federal level. Um, and then there's also good news at, uh, fiscally for the water plan, the state water plan. How are those things, do you, how do you foresee those things impacting water projects in Kansas? The biggest constraint to all the good intentions of wanting to do good works has always been money. And uh, the lack thereof or the inability for some of our communities to uh, uh, have the wherewithal to uh, make those, those types of investments. We're on the cusp of a five-year period where maybe we can make some inroads to, to help a lot of our uh, communities. I mean, we have uh, 627 cities in, in, the, in the state. Uh, the median population, I think, is 400. So we are a, uh, you know, I've always tell people, I said, we're the 13th largest state in the country. A lot of people don't recognize that, but geographically, we're big, but we're ranked 33rd in population. And so our population density just doesn't, except we're in certain urban areas, just doesn't rise to a level of creating ongoing stress. We're more a function of our, of our land use, influencing how, how water is, is managed. So, uh, the money that is coming down as a result of the, the bipartisan infrastructure law um, is mind-blowing. You know, for, for, for trying to scrape by and, and, and try to make uh, uh, enough money available to implement infrastructure over, over the past two to three decades, all of a sudden to get, you know, we're slated to get about $79 million in this federal fiscal year. Um, now, we don't have that money yet. Nobody scratched us the check on that. And the big question is, 
as with all federal money, is what are the strings? What right. are the rules of how mm-hmm. this is going on? And I think everyone, including your membership, uh, is is curious about how are we ultimately going to be able to utilize this money because it's coming to us in, in five different allotments, three on drinking water and two in clean water. Um, the regular SRFs, the state revolving funds for both clean water and, and drinking water, but also uh, replacement of lead service lines. And on both ends, on clean water and drinking water, uh, management and, and appropriate disposal of, of emerging contaminants, of which PFOS is the current poster child for, for that. Um, we're scratching our head trying to understand, okay, how, we, how do we ultimately implement that? And then added on to that is the new aspect uh, from this administration, which is we're really pushing uh, this as a vehicle to promote environmental justice. And we're still asking the question, just exactly what does that look like? We don't know. Um, there's one thing, you know, disadvantaged communities. We can certainly find disadvantaged communities in our urban areas and some of the older portions of town. Um, we can also make a case that a lot of our disadvantaged communities are sitting out in the rural landscape uh, as small towns, uh, typically population 1,000 or less, um, that are not growing and are aging, and basically their revenue streams are, are fixed incomes. And so they don't have the discretionary incomes to basically make some of these investments. So does that qualify as disadvantage? So we're still working and awaiting uh, guidance from EPA on how the money ultimately can be used and how it, it, EPA would like us to use it. Um, but we've got a lot of money out there to finally make some, some inroads. Yeah, so... So for those communities that, you know, have all these needs, what are the, some of the things you could point out to, to the city managers and mayors and city administrators? What do you do to get your community in the best position possible to use those funds once they are available? Well, I think you've got to take stock. You've got to know what you are. Um, in some cases, I mean, we'll help because we'll cite them as saying, hey, you've got some compliance issues here on either yeah. drinking water and that and that. And so that we've kind of presented the problem to them for them to understand that. But you know, they, uh, the city managers, need to stay abreast of how things are unfolding. Uh, use the, the League of Kansas Municipalities as, as a resource um, uh, for some of that stuff. Use things like this council to in interaction with that because the consultants uh, certainly have see a lot of opportunity to. Uh, help these communities, uh, again, make those appropriate investments so that uh, uh, they can um, stand firm for, for the next few generations mm-hmm. without having, having to worry, and yet not overly burden them with the, the financial price tag that comes along with those types of investments. Uh, so it, as with most of these problems, it's communication and finding, you know, tapping into your associations to share war stories of what's, what's, what's going on. And then ultimately, uh, whether it's the city, a rural water district, the, the members of the council, you talk to us and present the issues that, that you're seeing, and we can provide options to, to look at uh, what you might uh, be able to do. We can also tell you, you know, warn you off saying what you're proposing won't fly. Uh, we can tell you right now that's not going to happen so that you can utilize state government to help kind of guide up a pathway of what, what they're going to need. But at their root cause, it's going to be important that the city understand what it is. 
and then have a sense of what they want to be. And right. that will help then shape the, the spirit of how much they want to get into this game. Right, right. Well, I can sure echo that. I mean, I think of, um, of all the different states where I have worked, the, the state of Kansas is, is one where you really can get a lot of benefit out of contacting you and, and your staff early to get a good sense of how to preposition for funding and opportunities and things like that. But, you know, you mentioned um, lead and copper. You mentioned PFOS. And, and maybe those, maybe I've already given the answer here, but what do you see as some of the key challenges to not just, you know, public water supply, but just the water in general in the state? What are the real challenges, real threats that have to be addressed here? Well, ironically, I don't think lead is a big issue here in Kansas. I don't think PFAS is a big issue here. That may be around some of the older uh, military installations and some of the airports, yeah, where firefighting foam was, was used. But I think overall, that's not our uh, economic profile that would have been producing the, those substances and then utilizing them in a widespread manner. And, and we have a lot of territory out there. Again, we're not very dense. So I, despite the national initiatives, I don't know how much that plays uh, for less. Our issue probably is rooted in, in what does come about. And as I said before, we're a function of our land use. Well, our land use is agricultural. And so nutrients are certainly coming to bear. I'd say we have many more issues that are very apparent on things like nitrates in our, in our groundwater supply. We see disinfection, disinfection byproducts in our surface water supplies, which comes about because of excessive organic matter uh, generated by um, excessive nutrients and, and corresponding plant growth relative to that. And then conversely on the clean water side, it, we've made it a big priority to begin to start limiting the impact of nutrients, uh, particularly that low flow where the point sources uh, present probably the more dominant influence on water quality. But we've made great progress and success in, in lowering the, uh, the nutrient output at those lower flows that are coming from our, from our municipalities because of the investments th that they've made. Those are, I think, some of the, the big ticket items that uh, represent uh, water quality issues here in, in, in the state. The other one, of course, the number one non-point source issue has always been sediment. And you have a, a quality perspective of that impacting our aquatic life in our, in our streams. But you also have a, just a, a infrastructure impact of filling our reservoirs. And our hydrology is such that we have to rely on storage to get, get through the dry times, whether it's groundwater storage out west or it's reservoir storage here in the east. Um, storage is, is, is our savings account that gets us through the lean, the lean years. Sediment represents a, uh, the uh, ongoing constant uh, ATM uh, fees that take away some of the, some of the integrity of, the, of those, <laughs> those store sto uh, value of that storage. That's so, a good, good analogy. Yeah, so, you know, when you think about that then, when I hear that, I, I think of, you know, agriculture. I think of, uh, you know, Corps of Engineer um, projects for, for storing water. That means, you know, your folks have to be coordinating with a lot of other elements at the state level to do your job right. And is that true? Or you, you've got to be reaching out in multiple directions at one time? Well, first off, you have to buy into the fact that you can't separate water supply from water quality. Mm -hmm. Once you get over that hurdle, 
then yes, you're going to interact with Division of Water Resources on water rights and water appropriations and how it impacts uh, has impacts on, on water quality. You interact with the Kansas Water Office on how reservoirs are being operated uh, and what to what degree are they taking steps to try to mitigate sediment impacts and to advise them not to do certain things that would just shift the the impact burden out of the reservoir and into downstream waters by by passing sediments through, et cetera, to, to a degree. So there's, you know, we've, in Kansas, the, the business model for our water agencies is name a function of water and we'll create an agency for it. <laughs> uh, but we uh, have done a very good uh, job over the past 40 years, really, since the advent of the, of the Kansas Water Authority of real, the agencies really coordinating very well on uh, checking in on, with each other on, on what's going on. And to their credit, many of the governors have established uh, sub-cabinets that comprise the, the heads of those water agencies to talk through water issues on a, you know, a, a routine basis so that uh, we all understand where the others are coming from and we can offer up help or we can offer up uh, warning, uh, warning flags when things, uh, unintended consequences might be, might be presented. So, you know, uh, for, for ACEC members or for municipalities and utilities um, who are responsible for, you know, meeting their permit, achieving the right water quality, they end up building projects of increasingly complicated treatment plants on the drinking water end, on the wastewater end. And then the the next thing that has to happen is someone's got to run the thing. Someone's got to yes. operate that plant. Maybe you could take a minute and talk about some of the things that KDHE has done recently to make that easier for communities in terms of operating these water plants and finding the operations people to do it. Well, I, we've uh, tried to overhaul the... Uh, the testing for our certified operators for both water and wastewater to uh, basically get them uh, get their uh, initial certificates and then give them the green light to go and, and start working at those utilities to, to build up the necessary experience so that they can then become, become truly certified relative to that. Uh, we're trying to streamline the uh, certified operator regulations uh, so that uh, people can find their proper niche uh, in terms of what they're doing, whether it's uh, uh, water treatment or wastewater treatment or water distribution. Um, being able to put professionals, and I consider certified operators professionals, uh, in place to uh, uh, be able to make sure that those systems are, are uh maintain it and kept running and you have with even with the the, the spread of the, the demographics here in the state you have an equal diverse portfolio of the types of, of uh, systems that uh, deliver water and then are used to treat water from the uh, you know typical well fields for smaller towns uh, and they utilize uh, lagoons whether they're discharging or not discharging but they're very passive uh, energy wise I think they're very green actually from that regard but it's easy to maintain them and, and just uh, keep those up and there's not a lot of moving parts associated with it then as you grow up population more and more you get more of the complications that uh, come in the kicker and the key is how do you make uh, it's one thing to uh, attract them but it's also how do you retain them and that's a function of uh, uh, labor forces and where are they going to find, how does uh, some of our cities 
able to uh, maintain the revenue uh, stream to basically keep these people employed. And in some cases, what happens when they don't? And how do you create a, do you create a circuit rider program that uh, one given individual kind of takes care of a series of, of these systems and so forth? It's probably our biggest challenge is the human factor and being able for the next generation to have a, uh, a cadre of, of uh, operators out there that uh, can take all this infrastructure that all of a sudden we're going to build and keep it running and keep it running uh, to the, the way it was intended to, to perform. Which gets more and more complicated all the time. We keep adding more and more expectations on yeah. it. Uh, the evolution of, from at least on, in wastewater, from just secondary treatment which did a great job in and of itself, but now in you know dealing with how do we reduce nutrients, and now what happens with PFAS and if they are residing wind up residing in biosolids, how what's the appropriate way to deal with uh, sludge management in, in land application? It's a becoming more and more complicated, yeah. uh, and part of that is driven by uh, uh, the overall integrity of public health, and some of it just. Uh, you know, government being what it is sometimes creates these, these mandates that carry along some um, unintended consequences that really confounded the ability of a, a public system to be able to stay on the right side of compliance. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I think I know how you feel about it now for sure, but it's always seemed to me that the, the treatment plant operators on the drinking water side and the wastewater side both, you know, they really deserve to be elevated in terms of their level of importance in the community, right? We, from insurance purposes and permitting purposes, we call these facilities critical infrastructure, and they are. And so by that logic, you'd think that those employees and those operators are critical employees. And I think, you know, the efforts that have been made in the past few years as that work pool shrinks to elevate their status and their relative importance and, you know, their benefits that they get, hopefully will go a long ways. To, to keeping operators available and properly trained. Right. I think any, any given operator, uh, either he's going to like where he lives and it's just part of his his, his, his yeah. or her DNA that I want to stay out in rural Kansas and so mm-hmm. forth. Or if they say this is a good way to build up a career and I'm going to, like, like Frank, like many city managers, they stair step up to uh, the, up the, the ladder to different sized cities so that... You know, ultimately, you work from from starting out at Hoxie and you wind up in Olathe. Right. And uh, there's nothing you can, you know, it's a free country. There's nothing to do to, to do that, just as long as you've got someone coming back to Hoxie to be able to, to maintain those, those systems. I'll say for KDHE, and, and, um, and again, KDHE is one of those rare beasts across the country that's both a health and an environment agency. And during COVID and this pandemic, <clears throat> It was up to the environment side and the water side to say, you know, these water and wastewater operators are every bit uh, essential personnel. Uh, and that they, whatever policies we put forth or set priorities for, they've got to be up there in the front of the line, whether it's getting vaccinations or, or so forth or getting the, you know, putting in the appropriate protocols to, because if they go down, now you've overly complicated the situation. You don't just have a sick citizenry because of covid but now you're going to start introducing unsafe drinking water and you're going to have problems with sanitation of the of the, uh, of the sewage so yeah. 
we've pushed that constantly as a uh, underappreciated theme. Yeah, and I would say anybody who's hearing this, there's tons of opportunities in the water industry for for people of all training and discipline and education levels. It's actually a really, uh, I think, under uh, underappreciated source of employment. Um, I just have one more topic I wanted to bring up with you before I hand it back to Scott. Um, and this is uh, me coming from an engineering and construction firm, and you and I have had these discussions before, is talking about how over the past, really just like the past five years, five, six, seven years, the way that, that projects, infrastructure projects, are getting delivered has changed from being, you know, really homogenous to being lots of different ways that these projects get done. Mm -hmm. How has that affected you all's department in, in how you support that? Well, I mean... Sometimes we're a little slow to take things up, like design, build, and so forth, and it's it's kind of an acquired taste for us. Um, but design, build is here to stay. Design, build, if it did nothing else, it pointed out the the uh, monetary value of time, and that it was important not to just wait till the entire package was uh, reviewed and approved, uh, and then start your groundbreaking, but. There was time to be uh, uh, taken up in getting the site prepared and so forth. And design build fits to that with a kind of a modular approach to that. Uh, the counterpoint on our end was, okay, but don't give us uh, like a dozen different packages because now you've overly complicated uh, the pathway to get to a, a, final, um, a final project. Now with supply chain issues, it's even more important to basically be able to jump out and get going and get, uh, get materials ordered because who knows how long it takes now to get the necessary materials to, to actually, once we get to approval stage, to, uh, to build up, up the, the plant. So um, two things are essential for something like design build. Early and often, communication with us. Um, Actually, it's three things. Uh, a very comprehensive, uh, overarching design of, of, of basis uh, for what the engineering plans are going to ultimately reflect. And then um, a clear-cut, succinct packaging of the, of the, the plans and specs that, that come in there. Then, again, I, our sweet spot tends to be we, we probably do best when the, the packages come in numbered you know, about maybe three to four packages there and part of our, our problem with the you know the, the mini packages is because there's an interrelationship between each package when you're three packages uh, into it and all of a sudden you've got to make a change you got to go back to the first package and change that one as well and we, all the time value that we got from the design build uh, principle goes out the window because we're essentially starting from scratch. So the, the pressure on uh, the, the council membership is to basically have a very, along with your clients, is have a very clear idea of what you want to try to accomplish and then proceed with these uh, uh, limited but detailed packages for us to go through and approve. And we get uh, what's at stake, and we will push and expedite those, those uh, reviews quickly. Uh, the only thing that gets us gnashing our teeth is when we've done that and then all of a sudden you're back with uh, a revisit of, of a, a previously submitted submitted package. So the pressure is on, on the, the, the council membership to basically have a pretty clear vision of how you want to proceed. 
recognize there's always contingencies, and engineering has always been predicated on giving your, your best application of, of the, the science and engineering principles, but you always have a little contingency because the unknown is, is, is out there. Don't overplay the unknown in the quest of moving, just getting out the door fast to just get the project underway. Yeah, well, I've got to say, from our experience, I mean, that we've had great, great results working with your department and your folks. They've been, they've been really willing, kind of reinforces the message you've got is you're out there trying to help things get done and not be a barrier, and I think that gets proven every day. So maybe the walk the standard, the walkaway message is communication early and often is with everything. That's the way to make things work, right? Well, and, and I'll say this, you know, we were talking before the podcast, and, and we've had this conversation, Jeff and I both had this conversation with you, Tom, before, but your, your whole approach to all of this is not, you know, hey, we're the agency that enforces these rigs or executes these missions. As you often say, um, my job is to solve problems. Right. And, and we use all of our partners, the consultants, the municipalities, you name it. Uh, tell us something. So our membership, uh, at least those that work in the, in the water, wastewater, environmental area, et cetera, are pretty familiar with the remit of KDHE. But if you have anything, I'd be curious, tell us something that either is your responsibility or your opportunity that our members may not know about uh, that you think is, is critical to your, your bureau and your mission. All right. So first on the positive side, we, it's like you said, Scott, we're not in the regulatory business. We're in the problem-solving business, and that's a partnership between us, your clients, and, and of course, your, your, your membership to help solve that. And, and we, we can work through that. Our job is to make sure that whatever happens, you, you and your clients stay on the right side of, uh, of, the, of the two environmental laws that we're charged with administering. So um, we don't fix blame. We fix problems. And uh, that, uh, from what I hear, is, you know, kind of counter to the stereotype of the regulatory agency. I, frankly, you can call me a, a dumb son of a gun, and I'll, I'll wear that. But if you call me a bureaucrat, we're going to step outside. I hate, <laughs> I hate that connotation, uh, just that verbiage there, because I just don't understand why we have to uh, flex ourselves that way. We're in the business to make things better. And uh, we have a unique role in, in that, even though we're not necessarily designing the plans uh, and, and so forth. Our job is to help uh, make those projects come, come to life. Now, uh, the surprising thing might be, and it's maybe not so much from your uh, membership, but uh, maybe your clients, is that uh, there's a limit to what we do. Uh, we are not uh, so omnipresent and all-knowing all, all that we can exercise uh, uh, regulatory restraint on all sorts of, of, of activities. There's a strong limit to what, what we're able to do. And um, what we find frustrating for a lot of citizens is, you know, and this is, the, you know, everybody hates government until they need government to help solve their problem. <laughs> well, they'll call us and want to solve something and invariably we'll say, we don't deal with that. That's a local issue. And Kansas has always been predicated on a pretty strong principle of home rule. And there's a lot of local control and local jurisdiction. Well, that's where the problem has to be solved. The state can't step in and, and override that stuff. And, and we understand that uh, very clearly, what our role is there. 
our citizens don't. And when it becomes personal for them that they're uh, aggrieved by something that's happened in their locality and they're looking for relief, uh, I know fr- we frustrate them because we, we can't help them. Um, and there's a, a proper course for, for trying to do that. We will try to help them and advise them on, on things that they can try to explore, but we can't be the white knight to step in every time on, on these things. And nowhere is the uh, overall picture of water quality uh, more demonstrative of the, the actual limited authorities that we have than in non-point source. It's not regulated. It's not regulated across the country, and in very few states have got laws that allow some some type of uh, regulatory approach on non-point. Certainly not here in Kansas. So it is a function of, again, land use. And how do you influence the hearts and minds of the people that manage those lands so that they can put in some practices that maybe abate uh, some of the pollutant loads that uh, happen when a, a two-inch rain comes comes over their landscape there? Uh, that's a, And that will continue to be our, our ongoing challenge because... Uh, personally, I don't think we'll fully achieve all our water quality standards uh, because of non, the non-regulatory nature of non-point source and then just the fact that the climate is going to reflect acts of God, that no matter what we put out there, there'll be a storm that will overtake that. Nobody would expect pristine water quality during the 93 flood. That's that's a fool's errand relative to that. So. This, this this imparting of there are limits to what we do. The Clean Water Act is all about regulating the discharge of pollutants into our waters. It That's what it regulates. It does nothing toward uh, addressing pollution, the man-made alteration of the, of the characteristics of that water They're, that are influenced by uh, changes in hydrology, habitat, invasive species. We don't have a mechanism in my agency to deal with those types of things. And that requires a little more innovation and collaboration with uh, other resource agencies to be able to bring resources to try to attack those problems. Well, let me ask you this. So our members, obviously, in order to do work with you, they have to win work with you. And if they want to do more work with you, then they've got to do that, do that work well. What can you share uh, for the benefit of all our members? As we work with state agencies, we get good feedback from them about how we can improve, whether it's, hey, seems like over the last two years your QC on your plans isn't quite what it needs to be, or you know the plans are coming in strong, but with the communication maybe isn't what we aspire for it to be afterwards or maybe it's even on the proposals hey we're we're making selections based on these things and then we're you know finding that uh that maybe the proposal didn't paint the full picture whatever whatever that is what advice would you offer to our member firms that are listening to strengthen themselves in the value they provide to kdhe to make them a preferred partner advisor and consultant well, it, it's the corollary to communication, and it's basically give us as much information as you can to help us help you. And, uh, uh, again, this place to the design build. It works great if we have all the information in front of us. If there are certain pieces missing, we don't know what to do with that, and then that just creates a, a time gap for us to be able to, to act upon that stuff. So it's, it's early uh, information and early communication with us and then ongoing 
And believe me, my engineers, as they're doing review of plan, are not shy about throwing stuff back to the to the consultant saying, this doesn't cut it, and uh, take another whack at it. And it's not our job to redo the, the plans and specs. Uh, so good quality work uh, uh, always reaps its reward, even though uh, uh, it comes at a, a maybe a little higher price and, and, and a little more time, but it pays off in, in the end in terms of us moving, moving those things forward. So that continues to be our, our message is, is communication and do the best professional job uh, you have in producing uh, the plans and specs and the works that, uh, that come, come forth to us. Uh, and then just engage us in this ongoing communication to understand where the, where the pitfalls might, might lie and at, time, and at times where uh, some of the members and, and their clients are doing something somewhat innovative, educate us and get us to, to do it. I think we, we're amenable to things like uh, pilot testing, some concepts and, and so forth to, to do that. But um, we've got to do it in a way that safeguards not only ourselves, but also uh, the, the members and, and, and the and the clients, because always understand, if it's not us, it's EPA. And uh, I'll put our resume of, of uh, qualifications up against the federal government every time in terms of that. They can probably basically say they understand the letter of law and it needs to be thus. Their world is probably a little more black and white, where ours is shades of gray. And it's always in the shades of gray that uh, we've got to be able to talk to each other to to know uh, what direction we're going. One last comment on that. Uh, we see, we talked earlier about our Emerging Leaders Program, and we get a lot of training on risk analysis and assessment, and it's interesting to see the number one cause of claims in the design world, doesn't matter if it's water, vertical, whatever, uh, it's communication. It's not a mistake in the specs. It's not a a lack of um, acumen for the job or training uh, it's communication so your your answer is is pretty instructive there yeah and you know and to that point I'll, I'll point out the fact that ACEC and and other organizations like KSPE and folks like that um, just for the listener we we meet quarterly with Tom uh, to sit down and have lunch and just bring up the issues we've got someone representing consultants it's me we have uh, someone representing uh, the construction industry. That's Travis Stryker and Keel Johnson at Water One representing the utilities. Just gives us an ongoing opportunity to to talk to someone representing the state about what's on our mind, what's concerning us, what's concerning you, Tom, so that you know it kind of minimizes the um, something popping up on the radar at the eleventh hour that no one really knew about. And, you, to your point, you know, the more you can communicate those things earlier, better, more frequently, I think that's part of what makes the, the regulatory environment and relationship in this state, you know, something pretty special, something that works really well compared to other states. Um, it, it maybe, maybe along that line of reasoning, we'll kind of give you an opportunity here to talk about success stories. You know, you've been, you've been doing what you've been doing, uh, helping the environment for quite a while. What are some of the things when you look at you're really proud of that you or your folks have accomplished? Before I jump into it, let me circle back to our, our quarterly lunches and yeah. where, how they've paid off because I yeah. use them to vet some ideas uh, with, with you guys you have, right. to do that. And I'll, I'll 
announce right now. One thing we talked about uh, almost even with the fir- first launch was the the dire need for us to really uh, upgrade and uh, bring up to date the uh, minimum design standards on uh, for for wastewater. Well, we're starting to look at uh, making uh, an investment in hiring someone to begin to do that, and and to what degree we can borrow from the stand. Uh, the, the 10 states uh, uh, standards and then what has to remain to be customized for, for Kansas. But it's a long overdue project and we've never had the manpower to be able to just dedicate someone to do it. Um, we're going to try to tap uh, one of my predecessors who's now retired and say give him the assignment to mm-hmm. proceed uh, to begin to uh, that process. So bring the uh, the standards up to the 21st century i think i know who you're talking about he'd be great to do it yeah <laughs> he'd be just the right guy <laughs> yeah he's got the exact the uh the the temperament yeah. uh and the understanding um and he, uh, he used to uh parade around a little comic about uh how engineers have the knack nobody knows what the knack is but <laughs> whatever the problem is he's got yeah. the knack and uh well this this yeah, gentleman, this individual certainly has yeah, the he knack sure does. that's uh, funny there's a i assume it's what you're talking about there's a video for that where they're telling parents you know i'm afraid your child has been born with the knack <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is it's hilarious that's good uh success stories um yeah. i'm Really happy with the way we worked with uh, Johnson County and their uh, overall integrated plan for wastewater uh, upgrades there. Uh, that had the effect of uh, breaking loose some old, old uh, permits that had languished because of EPA objections, uh, because of the 25 year plan that this that we laid out on a horizon of how things were going to ultimately get done in, in, in the county. We broke through all their all that, and they are making huge investments in infrastructure there that is going to make a, a marked difference in uh, the environment uh, along the Kansas River and then in, within the county itself. Um, I'm very proud of us uh, taking the lead on uh, reducing nutrients from our point sources, where all the scientific debate was over trying to establish uh, numeric criteria. We decided not to play in that sandbox. We just said, don't know what the number is. Just know that whatever we're doing right now is, is insufficient. We need to start working on reduction. And we put forth a, a process since 2004 for the municipalities to go down that glide path and reduce, uh, reduce uh, their, their nutrient output to the point where Many of the cities now that have made those investments and have trained up their operators to get really good at operating the systems are exceeding what we expect through the through permits. That has now opened the door for some innovation for us to say, we need to reward some of those cities uh, for what they're doing in reducing nutrients from the wastewater and inver- kind of take this concept of water quality trading and kind of flip it on its end and say, Rather than uh, spend all your money on your the stormwater side of things with in-city projects, which cost a lot and don't move the needle much environmentally, let's open the door to allow you to basically take some of that money and spend it up in the watershed on non-point sources, which again have been our, our biggest, biggest cause of water quality impairment. 
and get credit for that as well as truly get some environmental benefit from from that we you know the in many ways the uh, Kansas stormwater uh, program is a, somewhat of an oxymoron in terms of what its true environmental benefit is again in the uh, I often say, you know, our, our cities are uh, little urban area, urban islands in a, in a sea of corn. And when the rain falls, it hits the whole landscape. And we can't necessarily measure what the impact of stormwater off that. Locally within the city, you sure can. You still have obligations to protect your citizens from high water and protect the property. But the add-on of water quality that gets a little more marginal. So let's make it more meaningful by putting those in, uh, urban investments out in the, in the rural, water, uh, rural watershed. Um, uh, with the Wichita uh, Water Treatment Project, I'm loving on that, and that's an area where we've dedicated an engineer to basically work with uh, the consultant and, and uh, the city to do, and it's making great progress so that they'll uh, finish on time and bring the bring the plant up to up to speed within the next year or two. Right. Uh, uh, maybe even a little ahead of schedule there, but that's been tremendous for the largest city in, in the state to basically upgrade that. And then next up will be their their wastewater plant on on the Ark River as well. Um, overall, though, uh, it gets back to what I was talking with Scott about. Is why I'm most proud of is that we're not bureaucrats. We're problem solvers in concert with, again, your clients and your members. Let's, we'll figure it out. And we each know what our respective roles are. And my engineers and my scientists are sharp, but they're not ideologues and they're not bureaucrats. They're there to make sure that uh, you and your clients uh, stay on the right side of the law. And I'm probably most proud of that as uh, kind of presenting that business model under the framework of, of environmental regulation. Well, that's, that's a great way to put it. And, you know, a, a lot of the problem solving you do is in the context of, of outreach and communication. And one of the ways you do it is your involvement with the Kansas Rural Water Conference. And, you know, given the, the pandemic and various uh, conferences that I haven't been able to go to or have gone virtual <laughs> or have changed dates, and I mean, you name it. And, you know, um, conferences have done it in terms of changing their venue. Uh, so for 2022, what can you tell us about the Kansas Rural Water Conference? Well, I can tell you, Elmer, and you know Elmer, uh, it's right. just been killing him that he hasn't been able to have his, have his, uh, no his cotillion down there in, in Wichita every, every March. I don't think there's any possible scenario that, that we don't meet live down in Wichita uh, at the end of March uh, this year to do it. And it'll be a uh, a grand homecoming a slash reunion, and for people to again, on that large scale, and it's probably one of the largest events we have in the state. Yeah. Uh, for everyone to uh, re-engage each other and uh, uh, rebuild the network that has uh, suffered because of the uh, lack of social connection that that we've had there. So uh, all signals are we're green light for for uh, rural water to hold That's the conference. That's great. Really yeah. looking forward to it. I know everybody's looking forward to that. Well, uh, shameless plug, uh, ACEC and KSPE have our uh, water quality seminar coming up in a few weeks as well. Right. Now, tragically, that will be virtual, but 
uh, all the same for listeners out there. If you haven't put it on your calendar, please do so. Well, Tom, you've been very generous with your time today. Let me ask you a couple of questions to wrap us up and take us home. Uh, a couple more lighthearted on the personal side of things. Uh, outside of work, what do you, if uh, you've got some free time, what what do you choose to put that discretionary time towards? Hobbies? You know, I, I think it's a function of the weather, but I'll, I, I love to read. Uh, I can escape into, uh, I am probably favor more the, the fiction books. Uh, go down that path, but movie. My wife and I uh, have always done done movies. I think Netflix is one of the greatest things that's ever happened because it, op- <laughs> it opened up a whole new world to 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 me as well. And do that. Uh, I've got grandkids, and so uh, engaging with them is uh, is uh, kind of my 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 looks to be my second career <laughs> in, in in helping them and, and imparting kind of the uh, the. The rules of, of rules of life and how to maybe avoid uh, bumps and when they do get them, understand the, it, it does it doesn't last forever. Um, I like to golf. Uh, I like to go to sporting events. I like to do things that I'm incapable of doing. So sporting events, go to uh, Nelson Atkins for art. Uh, I'm a huge music lover. I can't play a lick, but I appreciate music and I and I, I tend to. Uh, trend toward more alternative and and uh uh indie indie music so you could find me at uh uh over in power and light at t-mobile or at the midland or at the uptown or believe i've met the truman a lot i do take a bit of pride of being the typically the oldest person there at the concert (laughs) Uh, but that doesn't stop me from uh, crowding up toward toward the stage too so uh, those things uh, give me a, a great deal of joy, and frankly, the uh, the past two years of the pandemic have really uh, uh, crimped my style. In yeah, regard to those that. are all things that got hit pretty hard, weren't they? No, so, no. so those are the uh, thank types God for of Netflix. Oh God, yeah. yes, <laughs> uh, that that probably was the lifesaver. Yeah. Well, last question for you, and, and we've uh, we've waited till the very end to put you into you know a minefield. Uh, a question where you know sensitivities will be raised and and where there's no know, right answer here right a lot of risk though as a non-native kansan who didn't go to college here have you developed a tighter affiliation with one of the kansas colleges over the others and I saying am, k-state is okay saying k-u recommend is okay. it I, I, I don't know i'll tell you guys there's no right answer there's a whole lot of wrong answers but I'll, I'll say this: I am, a, I'm probably not atypical of, of the uh, either someone who didn't go to either school or someone who has a casual interest in that. Uh, I root K State football and I root KU basketball. Right. But I like K State. Uh, I like Wichita State basketball. I probably yeah. like Wichita State more than anyone. I, I, you know, Colorado State's are actually a mid major, so uh, not tied into the power power five conferences so i've always had a, a affinity for uh the the mid-level schools in mm-hmm. a wichita state uh certainly plays that i i will admit that when they play ku i i, I root for wichita state just because <laughs> of w- my own background right but you know the the beauty of, of satellite and cable is i can watch my my other, my actual two alma maters play and colorado state's doing great in in basketball this year uh, making amends and Minnesota and football was was wonderful uh, to watch. So it's a lot of fun to 
to do to escape into those those events. Well, I think I don't know about you, Mr. Keller, but I think he navigated that question masterfully. Yeah, that with, was uh, yeah. that was a delicate touch <laughs> for all the wildcat and Jayhawks out there. <laughs> And probably uh, hey, scored points with a few shockers. I, I do that. I, <laughs> well, right. yes, I always give that. But I understand the uh, the animosity because uh, you want to talk about the University of Colorado. I'll I'll have nothing good to, good to say. Uh, nor the University of Wisconsin or Iowa. I tell you. <laughs> so we're going to drag us down a rabbit hole here, and, and we'll close with this. But one of the things, one of the dynamics that I see all the time that blows my mind. Most of my, not all, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but most of my colleagues who are K-State fans, uh, there's not a whole lot of love lost for KU. I mean, that's... that's Probably fair to say. But for most of us KU fans, I love K-State. All of my hatred is saved for Missouri. (laughs) And... And it is always a bit of a hey, mystery. Hey, there's something we can all agree on, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's always a bit of a mystery to me. Like, I mean, I am a Kansan, and I, right. I like KU. That's my favorite. That's where I went to school. But, you know, if they're not playing KU, then I celebrate K-State successes. But my two favorite teams are KU and whoever's playing Missouri. You that's know, right. That's, well, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll tell you, Scott, I'm right there with you because I almost went to Missouri. Uh, fortunately, cooler heads prevailed, and I went elsewhere. But, <laughs> but uh, oh yeah, I, the, the, that school has so much potential, and it just can't help get not get in its own in its own way. Um, <laughs> I will say this though: they're also uh, undercutting it all. You know, K State, Colorado State, Iowa State, land grant universities always mm-hmm. have kind of. I think had a little chip on their shoulder against the what would have been called like maybe the professional school universities, KU, CU, Iowa, and so forth. So that, there's some of that in 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 play there. Even Minnesota, which is one solitary uh, campus, but it's the the, the professional uh, courses and uh, schools over on the Minneapolis side. The land grant is over in St. Paul, oh. and. There's that rivalry right there. And between yeah. those two cities, the Twin Cities uh, are uh, a shotgun marriage at many times. So so there's some of that always in play no matter where, where you're at. Right. Well, well, I just relayed all that, and it just occurred to me, my current ACC Kansas president, Jeff McCarrow, I'm pretty sure is a Missouri grad, and I want to say our president-elect, Brett Lukowski, is a Missouri grad You'll also. You'll be getting a text so later this afternoon. We'll see if I'm still gainfully employed <laughs> next month or not. Uh, I don't know. Well, listen, on, on that note, we need to, to wrap up. But, Tom, on behalf of Jeff and myself, uh, we are so appreciative of the constant partnership that we have with you and the opportunity to communicate. And we very much appreciate you making time to sit down with us today and, and talk to our members. Absolutely. It's been totally my pleasure. I appreciate you guys. Thanks very, so much. Very good. Well, thanks listeners, thanks for tuning in to this edition of the QBS Express. We will catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>